Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard Leduc. Thank you, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we want to talk a little bit about baptism in the early church. And to start things off, we wanted to reference uh, an article that we uh, read a couple of uh, a couple of days ago. It's from uh, an online article, Insider. Uh, Matthew Lowe is the is the author. And the title is, A Catholic Priest in Arizona Resigned After Discovering He'd Incorrectly Performed Thousands of Baptisms for Over 20 Years. Um, Just a couple of excerpts from from the article. A Catholic priest in Phoenix has resigned after realizing he's been incorrectly performing baptisms for over 20 years, rendering the rite invalid for thousands of people. As he administered the ritual, the Reverend Andreas Arango would say, We baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. But the correct wording is, I baptize. According to the Vatican's instruction, Thomas J. Olmsted, Bishop of the Diocese of Phoenix, wrote in January 14th, um, No one, including priests, may add, remove, or change anything in the liturgy on his own authority, Olmsted wrote. Citing Vatican teachings, Olmsted added that he didn't believe Arango had intentions to, to harm the faithful or deprive them of the grace of baptism and the sacraments. Still, the official Diocese of Phoenix website said that Arango's one-word alteration means that all of the baptisms he has performed until June 17, 2021 are presumed invalid. The diocese also called for those who believed Arango had incorrectly baptized them to submit their correct details to receive the proper rite. So, I mean, you thought you had a bad day at the office. Yeah, I was saved yesterday, and now I'm not. Yeah, well, so, I mean, over 20 years, we're talking thousands. I mean, it's one of the primary functions there in that for a priest in that diocese is going to be doing these baptisms. And because it is Catholicism, I'm going to guess that nearly all of them, I mean, probably somewhere around 99% of them were infant baptisms. I mean, obviously, people can choose to become a Catholic and be baptized later in life, but... Uh, you know, as we would call them in our church, child of record birth, right? I mean, uh, that's going to be the that's going to be the standard. Most of those baptisms are going to be infant baptisms, which also, you know, call it kind of calls into question. Well, now what? I mean, the article kind of brushed over the fact that, like, yeah, so those are invalid, and you know, the diocese is reaching out to people to to let them know, you know, hey, Bill, I know you thought that you'd. Receive this essential sacrament of the church in order to go to heaven. Sorry, you know you're not. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the call is like. But but it is interesting because they they go out of their way to say that this wasn't purposeful, this wasn't intentional, there wasn't some malfeasance here. But the baptisms are invalid. Yeah, regardless. Yeah, yeah. And 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 so you 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 see that as a uh, a thing now uh, now. Uh, now I want to talk about this in a, in a larger sense, and then we'll come back to this article. Or basically, you know, I mean, we're just going to ramble a lot. So, welcome to every week of the Standard of Truth podcast. But um, 
obviously Catholicism is in a unique position uh, in Christianity. I mean, a, a relatively unique position. I mean, that goes without saying, right? For its adherence and its membership worldwide. But also with the continued claim that baptism is an essential right for salvation, right? So that, 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 that baptism isn't just something that you do. Baptism is required for salvation. And so obviously this, that means that this, um, you know, my bad essentially by this priest is a lot worse than it would be otherwise. Now you'll notice that you probably haven't heard a whole lot of stories of, you know, Presbyterian ministers having performed the baptism ritual wrong and all of the baptisms having to be redone. Now, there is a liturgy inside of Presbyterianism about how you perform baptisms and, and who performs them and what you say. But there's a difference. And the difference, of course, one of the one of the main differences between uh, Protestantism and, and Catholicism is Protestantism is based upon the idea that salvation fundamentally comes from faith alone. This is this is the whole claim that 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 it's not because you were baptized, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, that you uh, um, you know made confession, that you did all the, you know all the good works. That that actually has nothing to do with your salvation. Salvation is based entirely on whether or not you have faith in Jesus. Now, if you have faith in Jesus, then then God's grace, grace is what saves you. Because you have faith, you you the grace of uh, uh, of uh, of the Lord covers your sins and and you're saved. Now, of course, the cynical, you know, Catholic or the cynical Latter-day Saint actually responds to faith salvation claims very, you know, like, oh, so are you saying I don't even have to do anything? Like I could just I just like go kill somebody now because I'm saved because I said I had faith in Jesus. Well, the the response, of course, from you know nearly every Protestant would be, well, if if your plan is that <laughs> you're going to go kill somebody, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you don't actually have faith in Jesus, right? I mean that that that's not what people with faith in Jesus do, and so. It's not that Protestants don't believe in doing good works. I mean, I think a good way of examining this is um, thinking about going on a mission. Okay, think about you think about going on a mission. Now, there are lots of very worthy, faithful members of this church, leaders of the church in places who, who never served a mission. Serving a mission is not required to go to the celestial kingdom. I really hope it's not, given the fact that my dad never served a mission. My dad was a, a giving man, you know, someone who was utterly devoted to the gospel, uh, but but he never served a mission. So it's it's not it's not a requirement, right? Now, of course, the, 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 there's the expectation that every worthy young man serves a, a mission, but it's not if you you know you can still go to the celestial kingdom if you didn't serve one. Well. We also don't think in our church, we don't believe that if you don't go on the mission, let's say you don't go, you, you know, you, you got a better offer somewhere, you know, and you, 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 you know, maybe you go into the military or you go to college and it's just not going to work, whatever, whatever the reason is, you don't go on a mission, 
Maybe you're not active at the time when it's time to go on a mission. You become active later. No, whatever. We don't believe that the person that you would have taught in Switzerland, well, I should probably pick a country where people listen. They wouldn't have listened in Switzerland either way. But let's say- Brazil. They go to Brazil. We don't believe that the person you would have taught in Brazil, who you would have taught, is now condemned to hell forever because you didn't go share the gospel with them. In fact, our theology is is such that we believe that everyone is going to have an equal opportunity to accept the gospel either in this life or in the next life. Now, you might have, maybe you going, you would have touched their heart and it would have mitigated, you know, years of not having the whole truth, but their ultimate salvation actually isn't really in your hands. God has made provision through work for the dead for every single person to, to have a chance to go to the celestial kingdom. So if I'm not, if, if the person can still be saved, if I don't go on a mission, if I can still be saved, if I don't go on a mission, well, that leads to what's behind door number three. Why am I even going on a mission? Right? Yeah. And so someone, and I'm making this comparison to why Protestants do good works because I didn't go on a mission because I thought it would get me into heaven. And I didn't go on a mission because I believed it was the only way people could be saved. I, I already had a testimony of the idea of work for the dead. And I understood that everyone was going to have an opportunity. I went on a mission because God commanded me to go on a mission and because I love God. Now, that that is is the way that that Protestants generally see works. Of course, I'm going to help the poor. Of course, I'm going to try to live a moral life. Of course, I'm going to try to share the gospel with other people because I love Jesus. It's just that I don't believe that doing those things is what saves me. What saves me is the grace of Christ because I have faith. Now, of course, Protestants disagree about how you get that faith. If you're a Calvinist, you believe that God gives you the gift of faith, and it's a free gift from God. You did nothing of yourself. God chose to give you faith, and that's why you're saved. Um, And if you're an Arminian, then you believe that you were actively participatory in that, that you chose to accept God's extended hand of grace and that is why you're saved. But either way, you're saved by faith. Either God gives you the faith or you choose the faith. But regardless, faith alone is how you're saved. I think there is a fundamental misunderstanding on the part of our Protestant brothers and sisters as it relates to our idea of works, though, as well. Sure. Yeah, because they because they think that we think that we can work our way to heaven, that we're right. just working our way. I mean, you'll, you'll hear people say, like, you think you can work to go to heaven. And, and look, theologically speaking, I mean— Latter-day Saints, of course, also believe that we are saved by the grace of Christ. Catholics also believe they're saved by the grace of Christ, but they believe that that grace is applied as people apply grace to themselves through performing the ordinances or rites, if you're talking Catholicism, that, that God has commanded people to perform. So, you know, fundamentally, when it's, you know, grace versus works, what it boils down to is, for a Protestant, are there any essential things you have to do in order to be saved? 
works. Are there, when we say works, I don't mean, you know, necessarily helping old ladies across the street. I mean, which, which is great. Please help every, you know, old, you know, person you see struggling to get across, please help them do it. Whether you think you're getting saved for it or not. But, uh, as in things like baptism, confirmation, um, you know, for, for Latter-day Saints, uh, they, they believe in further, you know, temple rites and rituals, the endowment, washings and anointings, right? That, that there are other things that are required for. So now, of course, our understanding of salvation is already different. If you want to go back and listen to our, our multi-part series on Doctrine and Covenants section 76, already we, we're, when we talk about salvation, we're really talking about different tiers of heaven, because we already believe the grace of Christ is eventually going to save everyone essentially from, from, from hell and everyone will at least be in the celestial kingdom. But we, we're really talking about exaltation. So there's a little bit difference there. In any case, for a Protestant, they don't believe that there's anything. It is only by faith. Now, of course, because you have faith, you're going to get baptized because Jesus commanded you to get baptized. So what person having faith in Jesus, saying, I know that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I know that he commanded me to be baptized, but I'm not going to do anything he says. I mean, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? So, so of course, Protestants revere baptism. Their baptism day is, for, for many people, it is, it, it's the most sacred day of their life, especially for people, um, you know, who follow, you know, more Baptist style traditions where they, where they do adult baptisms, that is the day where they they really have they declare publicly, I am Jesus. I, I'm I am Jesus's and he is mine and I will serve him and I'm publicly declaring it. It's also the way that people enter churches. You know, that's this is what may put you um, you're baptized into a church as well. But the difference is, even though, you know, for a Baptist is a great example, a Baptist would be the first person to tell you that though the name implies baptism's pretty essential, it's actually not. Of course, any true believer in Jesus will want to be baptized because Jesus told them to get baptized. But what about that thief on the cross who never was baptized, right? Who, as the two other you know the 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 one railed uh, against Jesus and, and you know you know if you be the son of god save yourself and us and the other said lord you know remember me when the, the coming of thy kingdom and Jesus says to that other thief while they're up on the cross you know today thou shalt be with me in paradise so for many protestants they see that as the demonstration that while, of course, if you can get baptized, you're going to, baptism can't actually be essential for salvation. Because if it was, then that thief couldn't be going to paradise. That, that, and so that, that, that's the argument that a, uh, a Protestant would make. Again, I don't want to say that they don't believe baptism's important. If you're, uh, of course they do. Baptism's a, a part of nearly every single Protestant denomination that I can think of. Um, and, and what that baptism means runs the gambit of just simply an outward sign to, to you making a participatory commitment to the grace that God has offered you, to you joining in a covenant chain with the church. I mean, there's all kinds of ranges, but fundamentally, baptism is not 
essential for salvation. You do it for whatever the reason is, and it's it's a holy thing to you, but you don't have to have a baptism to be saved. You could be that thief on the cross. You could just, by confession of your faith, be saved. For Catholicism, for a really long time, that was the case, uh, that you know baptism is essential, and if you're not baptized, you can't be saved. Um, um, since uh, 1965, since the Second Vatican Council, now no one's listening at all right now, right? We've gone... Well, when should I start talking about townships maybe to, to bring them back? Yeah, we need to bring them back. I need, I I need to talk about townships in rural Vermont (laughs) in order to get people back into the podcast. But, um, that there's some, been some softening of that language over the course of time in Catholic liturgy, um, about, you know, what happens to someone who's not baptized but this is a pretty big conundrum. I mean, this is, uh, uh, it, you have people who believe that they've performed an essential rite of baptism that they didn't actually perform, that, that, that through no fault of their own. Now, I want you to think about the fact that if you're a, one of these parents who took their baby to get baptized, your baby was baptized, and horrifically and tragically, you know, a few weeks later that, that baby passed away. I don't have any idea the demographics or the numbers. But if there's thousands, you would assume if we're maybe talking there's tens at least of thousands, a couple. There's got to be at least some that that are not alive anymore because this is over a 20-year period. So you, you didn't have to die as a baby. You could have died when you're 15. And, you know, obviously not everyone lives. And so um, what are they thinking right now? Now... Uh, if you go to uh, uh, the the Catholic Catechism um, from the Vatican, so I'm on the Vatican's website here. Okay, so I'm not trying to, I'm not doing any anti-Catholic uh, rhetoric here. Um, uh, in in the Catholic Catechism, under the necessity for baptism, um, there there's exception that is is made for the intent to be baptized. That might, you know, give some comfort to those people. Now, now, Richard, you were telling me you had a story from your mission. Yeah. yeah well, so, well, let's hear that story well, first. Well, so, yeah. yeah, so Vatican II comes out, well, like 65 or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah, they're it's, working on it for like a decade. But, yeah. yeah. So um, I was uh, serving in Southern California, and we were tracting, and you, you do different door approaches when you're, when you're tracting. Um, and um, this particular day, we were talking about the eternal nature of families, and the families are together forever. We knocked on a on a door and we we said something along the lines of you know uh, that families can be together forever, and the woman on the other side of the door started to cry, and she um, she was Catholic, and uh, she had a baby that didn't die immediately, uh, but uh, died still as an infant, and she never took the baby in to be baptized and at the funeral as she claims that her priest told her that that baby was in hell and because the the priest i apparently was obviously very upset that she hadn't done these things and for the and in i'm trying to i'm trying to say in fairness to the priest in this particular i don't know that you know time and place right <laughs> right yeah <laughs> but, that may but, not have been but it's entirely possible that maybe he said it under his breath it, well maybe no, it was well. like try the veal and 
and your baby is burning. But the thing is, is that the, the thing that's difficult there is that in trying to be, you know, give credit to the priest, the priest believes that to his core, right? Right. And the priest is frustrated and upset and angry that this is that this has happened, and and he he lets it lets it fly on on this poor grieving mother. The, the whole circumstance is fairly tragic, but whatever whatever the softening of the language, and I think you're going to read it in a second. Yeah. That, that's 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 nice, and that kind of a, is moving in the direction of of more mercy. You know, you've got the Catholic Church has a billion people in it, and you've got you know eighteen hundred, nineteen hundred years of history that are. Yeah, and so Vatican II could come out and say a particular thing, but a priest might not necessarily agree with Vatican II. And in his little fiefdom, as he's teaching his congregation, he might be a little bit more um, conservative or fundamental. To I some know of the it's going to be hard for most of our listeners to believe that in different wards you might be in, there might be different <laughs> levels of gospel doctrine teachers with different opinions. Well, the, but imagine, imagine, <laughs> imagine a, a world, world where where. What someone thinks the gospel is essential. I. <laughs> it, it was interesting. It was interesting. So you know, the, I, if if I was writing an Enzyme article, she was baptized and ended up becoming you know well, you state were, you were in Wisconsin, so it was at least possible. Yes. Well, I mean, so but we did we did end up end up teaching her, and she ended up not progressing in the discussions, and and who knows what what uh, what's happened. But I will say. That at least in that moment, when we had an opportunity to teach about the eternal nature of families and the opportunity for all of um, God's children to be together forever and obtain salvation, it was at least in that minute. And, and sometimes on missions, you just kind of get little, just Glimpses, little bits, yeah. little pieces. And uh, it was about, it, you could see just this pain that was on her. She was just weeping as she was telling us a story. She's kind of be lifted. It was a very interesting experience. So, I mean, if you go to the catechism, there's some, there's several things that are in there, right? So first of all, one of the questions that obviously was asked is, you know, you can't, if you're going to convert to the church, you have to go through the catechism process, right? So you have to be taught. I mean, again, very similar in the sense of latter since you have to be taught, you have to accept the doctrines and then you're baptized. So they call someone who's going through the catechism process, a catechumen, which kind of sounds like a book of Mormon evil person's name, but, um, you got pay you got yeah, catechumen, yeah, you got catechumen, kishkumen, we got all kinds of cumens. <laughs> all the cumens. Yeah. But, um, um, so what happens if someone is trying to join the church? They're going through the process, they're going through the classes, and they get hit by a bus on their way to their <laughs> baptism. Well, that's a real problem, right? I mean, now you might think that, you know, I know I'm kind of making light of it and saying that, but this is a real world situation. This actually does happen, you know, where people fully intend to get baptized and it tragically die beforehand. So 1259 of Vatican II. For catechumens who die before their baptism, their explicit desire to receive it, together with repentance for their sins and charity, assures them the salvation that they were not able to receive through the sacrament. So there's this allowance made. If you're trying to be baptized and and die before you are, well, then, then there's an allowance. So I'm guessing that 1259 would apply to many of these people. They were trying to be baptized. Clearly you're trying to. Now that does say for catechumens, that's an adult or 
at least someone of, of age, who's saying, I want to be baptized. 1260. Since Christ died for all, and since all men are in fact called to one and the same destiny, which is divine, we must hold that the Holy Spirit offers to all the possibility of being made partakers in a way known to God of the Paschal mystery. Every man who is ignorant of this, so this is important. Every man who's ignorant of the gospel of Christ and of his church, but seeks the truth and does the will of God in accordance with his understanding of it, can be saved. It may be supposed that such persons would have desired baptism explicitly if they had known its necessity. So here's this other catalog that's made for people who don't know, they're ignorant of the gospel of Christ in his church. This is someone who isn't being taught by you know, Catholic missionaries. They, they don't know about it, but are trying to do the best they can. If, if it can be supposed that th this good person would have desired baptism if only they understood it, then they can also be saved. So that's a huge allowance, obviously, for, for many, many people. But now we'll get to 1261, which is, like I said, the one that's probably going to relate most to what we're talking about here. Because nearly every baptism performed by this priest, illegitimately now, de you know, declared illegitimate, would have been a, a baby. As regards children who have died without baptism, the church can only entrust them to the mercy of God, as she does in her funeral rites for them. Indeed, the great mercy of God who desires that all men should be saved and Jesus' tenderness towards children, which caused him to say, let the children come to me, do not hinder them. That's quoting from the, the Vulgate, from the Catholic uh, Bible. Allow us to hope that there is a way of salvation for children who've died without baptism. Now, that's probably not quite as comforting as, as you know, 1259, if you're someone explicitly trying to join the church and you die before you're able to, well, there's an allowance made for you. 1260, if you're an adult, you know, you're, who's, who never has heard about the church and doesn't know anything about it, but are a good person, then there's an allowance made for you if, if it's believed that you would have accepted baptism had you known about it. But we're really talking about children here. So that wasn't, they weren't the ones desire, desiring baptism with their parents. As it regards little children who've died without baptism, you know, the, these quotes allow us to hope that there is a way of salvation for children who've died without baptism. To hope that there's a way of salvation is not the same thing as declaring and this their is, sin. And this is a softening of, of what it w was before. Sure. It would have been before. I mean, all throughout the medieval times, the doctrine of limbo is, is something that is, you know, taught by a lot of theologians that, you know, unbaptized babies don't go to hell. They go to a place in between heaven and hell because they can't go to heaven because they weren't baptized. Baptism is essential. They weren't baptized. They can't go to heaven, but they're not going to go to hell because God loves children. And that's, you know, I, any theologian listening to be like, oh, there's like 95 other things. I, I, this is, this is the Reader's Digest version, obviously. And also the Reader's Digest version written by someone who isn't a Catholic theologian. So it's, it's even worse. It's like the Reader's Digest version <laughs> written by someone not able to write. Um, but you'll notice that there's, that's not a definitive statement. There's, even with Vatican II, it's not a definitive statement that they're going to be saved. It's, it's the hope. And in fact, it's followed up by something that kind of 
diminishes that hope a little bit, right? So after saying we can hope that there's a way for the salvation of children who've died, all the more urgent is the church's call not to prevent little children from coming to Christ through the gift of holy baptism. I mean, that that follow-up sentence is almost saying, because we actually don't know if they're saved and we're only hoping that they are. It's urgent that they do. You better get them in here and get them baptized and hopefully not incorrectly by a well-meaning but wrong priest. Now, why did I, I why did we focus on this? Well, because this is how I was going to announce to you that I'm on my way to becoming a Catholic priest. <laughs> no, um because in the early church, this is something that uh Latter-day Saints are dealing with as well. This question about baptism, one of the most unique facets of uh of the church and and of the Book of Mormon is that while the Bible you might wonder, how is it that Protestants can argue that baptism isn't essential? I mean, doesn't Jesus say, whosoever believeth and is baptized shall be saved? Well, yes, but he also says, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And so Protestants would argue that the operative aspect of that is belief, right? Whosoever believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Again, because of course you're going to get baptized if you believe. But who's going to be damned? Someone who doesn't believe, right? So so a Protestant would argue the operative thing here is obviously belief. Now, of course, a Catholic would argue the opposite. A Catholic would say, no, it says you have to believe and be baptized. But a Protestant would say the belief is the essential part. Of course, you're going to get baptized if you believe. And if you don't believe, then you won't get baptized. But it's the the lack of belief that's going to condemn you. So this is uh, um, early Latter-day Saints, you know, before they were even called Latter-day Saints, early Mormonites. um, One of the major differences, one of the things that's going to be stark to uh, members of the church joining the church is... Not just that baptism is important. Again, baptism is very important in the Baptist uh, uh, sects that are growing all over the, the the country at the time of Joseph Smith. It, it, you know, it's the main part, right? It's adult baptism that someone accepts this covenant with Jesus to join the church. But there's something very different about what's being taught, and you actually notice how different it is by the inquiries that Joseph and Oliver have when they are translating the Book of Mormon. That's because the Book of Mormon takes a lot of the ambiguity out of Mark 16, 16. Because when Jesus says something similar in the Book of Mormon, it's 3 Nephi 11, 33 through 34. And whoso believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved. And they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. And whoso believeth not in me and is not baptized shall be damned. So whereas the Mark version of, of this kind of leaves off baptism as being important on both sides, when Jesus is speaking to the people in Third Nephi, it's explicit. It is baptism's essential. And then Jesus goes on to give power to baptize to certain people and to tell them how baptism is supposed to be done. 
when Oliver Cowdery and Joseph Smith, you know, read, I mean, I'm doing air quotes. I mean, this is Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon and Oliver Cowdery's writing it down. This is the first time they've ever heard this. And so their natural response is, um, if baptism is essential for salvation, you know, because both of them are coming from Protestant backgrounds. Joseph's coming from, you know, primarily a Presbyterian background, which there is baptism in the Presbyterian church. There's infant baptism, actually. Uh, and But Joseph wasn't baptized into the church. If, if, as you might recall from an earlier discussion we had, when Alvin dies, it's a Presbyterian minister who, similar to the woman you met on your mission, the Presbyterian minister, I, I don't know at what part of the sermon, I don't know if he's like, you know, we're all sad that Alvin has passed away and also Alvin's burning in hell. The argument that the minister made was Alvin was an adult. He never desired to be baptized he hadn't joined the church through baptism. So therefore, he must never have really had saving faith. God must not have given him. If God had given him saving faith and grace, of course, as an adult, he would have wanted to be baptized. And so the conclusion the minister came to, at least according to Lucy Maxsmith, was Alvin was in hell. Now, again, not what you want to hear at your son's funeral, right? But that minister very much believed it. Again, he didn't believe baptism saved anyone. But he was pretty certain if you were an adult living in America during the midst of the Second Great Awakening and you had never felt the call to get baptized, then God hadn't given you the gift of faith. If he had, you would have manifested it. And you didn't. So, welcome to hell, Population Alvin. Um, so, so, this idea that even the lack of manifestation of baptism might demonstrate that someone is, is destined for hell is something that's very much on Joseph Smith's mind. Well, now as they're translating this, the, the Book of Mormon, it's becoming readily apparent as they translate the Book of Mormon. I mean, you don't have to get very far in Mosiah and Alma before you realize, hey, baptism seems to really matter. It, 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 it's, it's a big deal in the church. But then you have the Lord appear to the people and make baptism an express commandment and give people exactly how they're supposed to do it and give people exactly the authority. Only these people have the authority to do it. Well, so, so Joseph and Oliver have a huge sea change in their understanding. They are coming from Protestant backgrounds where baptism is really only the symbol that you believe. That's why it matters. I mean, again, it's more than that. I don't want to denigrate that. If there's a Protestant listening... I understand baptism is very important to you, but you would also agree that it is not essential for salvation. You, if, if you've been saved, if God's given you the gift of faith, or if you've chosen to have faith, of course you'll choose to be baptized, but it's not essential for salvation. Well, once Joseph and Oliver realized that it seems to be, their question is, uh, how can we be saved. It's kind of the same question that Joseph had in the grove when, when he first went to the sacred grove. How can I be saved? A and this is when they have the authority restored to them and, and they, they baptize one another. In point of fact, very interesting, right? Uh, today, you would say something like, you can't receive the Aaronic priesthood unless you're a baptized member of the church. 
But in fact, Joseph and Oliver are not baptized. And John the Baptist places hands on their head and gives them the priesthood of Aaron. So it's an example of, you know, again, the way we do things today, because God has outlined them in the church's structure, that you're baptized, and then when when men reach a certain age, they are then given the Aaronic priesthood and then different offices in it. Joseph and Oliver are not, A, members of the church, because the church doesn't exist. B, they are not baptized, because they have they haven't been baptized and and they are given the authority and they then proceed to baptize one another. Again, you won't find it very often in the modern church, at least not if anyone's doing what they're supposed to, that someone who is not baptized is now baptizing someone else. But that's exactly what happens when Oliver baptizes Joseph, Joseph baptizes Oliver. And the fact they even have authority at all is outside of our general understanding of how you can receive authority. Well, the fact that baptism is essential is, is, a, is a different thing for all of the people that are coming into the church. That baptism is important, most people agree with that. I mean, most of these camp meetings end and, and you know, these revivals end and people going down to the river and being baptized. And it's a, it's a big deal to, to publicly demonstrate it. But it's actually a different type of theology, much more similar to Catholicism in the sense that baptism isn't just what we do if we believe. Baptism is essential for salvation. Well, that's going to lead to lots of questions. Doctrine and Covenants section 20, which is kind of the early handbook of the church, right? It's, 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 it's called the Articles and Covenants of the Church. It's read at the church's first conference and it's approved by the church. Doctrine and section 20, you can already tell, is like a little mini handbook of the church. I mean, You've probably referenced it in, in, in being in a bishopric, like, oh, what does DNC 20 say about that? Because it gives the baptism prayers, it gives the sacrament prayers, it gives the offices uh, in the priesthood, it says what the, each office's job is. I mean, there's all kinds of things in there. It's like a little mini handbook for the early church. Again, reiterates the essential nature of baptism by explaining who can be baptized how you could baptize, who has the authority to baptize. Baptism from the beginning of the church is very essential. So you start to have different questions about baptism in the early church than you might have in your ordinary Protestant denomination. So, for instance, what we have in Doctrine and Covenants section 22. So, Doctrine and Covenants section 20 is received... It's received in two parts. Part of it's received in 1829. We don't know what part. And part of it's finished or completed in 1830. Again, we don't know what part. So it's a composite revelation. Um, But on the heels of that revelation, only days later, actually, uh, another revelation is going to be uh, received talking about baptism. This is Doctrine and Covenants section 22. Doctrine over section 22, so so 20 is received, you know, kind of straddling the beginning of the church and then and then its founding. 21 is received at the founding of the church. It's received literally, you know, at the meeting on, on, on April 6th. 22 is the next revelation received. And it's only a few days later. It's April 16th of 1830. Okay, so the church, 
is 10 days old. They're trying to share the gospel with people and already baptism is actually the first known controversy in the early church. I, 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 there might be others. Like, so I, I, I'm, I, I don't have enough documents and I want to be careful as a historian that maybe there were others, but the first known controversy we have after the church is established is doctrine and covenant section 22 is addressing it. And, and, uh, that is this reference to whether or not people need to be baptized into the church of Christ, if they've already been baptized in other faiths. Again, most Protestants, by the time they're adults, have already been baptized. Uh, many have been baptized as infants. Some, like Baptists, you know, they're arguing that, no, you should only get baptized when you're an adult, so you can make that covenant yourself. You can say, I, I'm going to serve Jesus because, you know. But for others, you know, they, they, you know Lutherans and uh, Congregationalists and Presbyterians, they're still performing infant baptisms on the basis of, well, obviously a child can't exhibit grace, but if their parents are, you know, in the church and in grace, then they, they, the child can have that grace at least extended to them through that the parents demonstrating their faith. Again, the baptism doesn't save the child. The child has to have faith to be saved. But that's why you would justify it. And of course, they found all kinds of reasons to justify that. But this, at least according to source we have, is particularly comes up because of, and it would make sense, of a group of Baptists who wanted to join the church but didn't think they should have to get rebaptized. So, so they've accepted the gospel. They they oh, the Book of Mormon's true. I, I want to be Joseph Smith's a prophet. I want to be baptized. This is what the one of the early section headings, uh, section heading. Well, the early, the early introduction written in the earliest manuscript version of this. A revelation given to Joseph the seer. Some were anxious to join the church without rebaptism, and Joseph inquired of the Lord, and he received as follows: a commandment unto the Church of Christ, which was established in the last days, uh, one thousand eight hundred and thirty. Uh, in the fourth month and in the, uh, the sixth day of that month, which is called April, that's when the church is founded. Behold, I say unto you, uh, you know, and it goes on uh, to give the response. And um, the, the explanation, I mean, we don't have to read it. We could read it. It's very short. Behold, I say unto you that all old covenants have I caused to be done away in this thing. And this is a new and everlasting covenant, even that which was from the beginning. Wherefore, although a man should be baptized an hundred times, it availeth him nothing. If you cannot enter into the straight gate by the law of Moses, neither by your dead works. For it is because of your dead works that I have caused this last covenant and this church to be built up unto me, even as in days of old. Wherefore, enter ye in at the gate as I have commanded, and seek not to counsel your God. Amen. So apparently this group of, of and again, we have by another source, they said it was a group of Baptists, which would make sense because to a Baptist, their adult baptism day is a sacred, sacred day to them. That's the day when they have come, they themselves have come to the decision from this day forward for the rest of my life, I serve Jesus. And, and so, you know, you can ask, uh, if you have a Baptist friend, ask them if they know their Baptist baptism day, they will. They'll actually know it better than you do. You'll be like, oh, I know it was eight, but that, no, they'll like know the day. You know, they won't have to go searching through their, through their church records to figure out what day it was because it was so holy to them. And so they're not only 
making a huge transition to join this brand new church that's claiming that there's some kind of scripture outside of the Bible, which is already just right out, right? They're told that in order to join the church, they need to be baptized. And so you can see, oh, you don't understand. I already, already committed myself to Jesus, you know, seven years ago. I, I, it, you don't understand when, when I, when I was, when I was 21, I, I, I already was baptized and made my covenant to Jesus. And, and the reason why baptism wouldn't seem to need to be redone is because these people are all coming out of a world in which baptism isn't essential. The point of baptism is to outwardly demonstrate, to them, to outwardly demonstrate that you have accepted the grace of Christ to salvation. But the baptism itself doesn't save you. And so you can see within within 10 day, within two weeks of the church being founded, the fact that the church was stating that baptism was essential led to the question, this, this question that prompted the revelation. A revelation is received on the basis of, well, can't these people just say, you know, their old baptism is when they committed it. Isn't that enough? And it's kind of the response from God. I, I don't think you get it. Baptism has to be done by proper authority. If you're baptized a hundred times and it's not done by proper authority, then then it doesn't matter if you were. And so that, that makes a very pretty definitive statement. You're not able to join our church without baptism. Now, while we're talking about this priest, I mean, we've actually used this example before. Let's say that you know, a girl goes to get baptized. She's going to have her dad baptize her and she's going to have both of her grandmas serve as, as, as witnesses of the baptism. All right. So they're going to be the ones up there judging. Now, of course, both of her grandmas, they've got cataracts so thick, they can't even see the water, let alone what's going on in the water. Okay. They, they, they're elderly. The dad's a little bit too enthusiastic. And as he says the prayer, he, he dunks his daughter down a little too far and, and one of her feet come up out of the water. Well, no one really sees it. The dad doesn't notice. The grandmas are like, looks good. You know, they're fine. Is this girl actually baptized? Are all of her covenants that she's going to make both with baptism and for the remainder of her life, are they invalid because this error was made because look we believe in baptism by immersion and she was not baptized by immersion what if i mean making it even closer to home what if it's a brand new bishopric that just got called and the bishopric member who's there for that baptism second counselor never been in the bishopric before his very first baptism and even though the words are up there on the on, right behind him on the font, as everyone is, you know, knows who've been in a sacrament meeting, even though the words are right there in front of the priest, that doesn't mean that they're going to read them that way. Yeah. I know myself. You're going to say, eat it. Oh, yeah. You put all kinds of words in. Yeah, you're going to. I, if I had a nickel for the number of times I've messed up trying to bless the sacrament, I'd be a, I'd be a wealthy man and, and this podcast would be monetized just through my poor prayers on the sacrament. I mean, 
So let's say that this second counselor in the bishopric, the, the dad baptizes his daughter. She goes all the way under, but when he does it, he, he leaves one of the words out, right? Maybe he, instead of saying, and of the father and of the son and Holy ghost, or he says, I, instead of we, maybe in this, or the opposite, yeah, or he says, we, yeah, he says, we baptize you in, yeah. right? And, and the bishop, you know, the bishopric member is so excited. It's his first baptism. It's a beautiful thing. Everyone's crying. Everyone's happy. But he doesn't, he doesn't say, Hey, you got to do it again. Is she really baptized or is she just tricked into thinking she's baptized her whole life? She does everything else. You know, she, she's going to go to the temple. She's going to, she's going to, uh, receive her, 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 her washings and anointing. She's going to be endowed. She's going to get married in the temple and, and she's going to live her life and she's going to repent in faith and take the sacrament. And when she dies, she's going to go up to judgment and, and St. Peter's going to say, I'm looking at, um, Looking at your file here, um, yeah, yeah. He said we instead of I. So, sorry, you're not baptized. And welcome to hell, population. You, I mean, it, at least you'd be with Alvin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, now it's now they can have a party. Um, I I would guess that while we you know while we attempt to make those things right at the time, that we don't say that that actually isn't a valid baptism. The fact that her foot came up and no one noticed doesn't mean that she doesn't actually have uh, that covenant. But God commands us to try to do things the way that they are to be done. But if someone makes a human error, and I've got news for you, we're all humans and we make errors constantly, and that error isn't caught, we don't simply say, well, now all of those people don't have the ability to be saved. Now they can't, they are, they, they are no longer candidates for the celestial kingdom. Um, so it's a very interesting thing that while baptism by proper authority is essential in our church and it's very, you know, legalistic, we have, we have the words, we have, we have the, the way that it should be done. It should be done by immersion. There's also this allowance that's made that, intent to do it the right way seems to be what matters most. So I, I like to think about an example. So let's say, let's say that a father baptizes his children. Um, he will probably perform in his life a handful of baptisms, maybe three, maybe seven. If he went on his mission to Wisconsin, he'd like lose several of them. <laughs> That's right. It'll be like negative two <laughs> baptisms. I didn't even go in the water. It was so, frozen over. So but let's say, so five baptisms, 10 baptisms in, in a person's entire life that they would perform. And um, so it's fairly infrequent, doesn't happen that often. And in, in the instance that you're describing, there isn't, something now if you catch it and you see it then, then you redo, redo it, it. Yep. similar to the the sacrament we want to be uh, correct and we want to do things right um but it doesn't to your point invalidate the baptism it right doesn't. because because what you're really relying on is that second counselor in the bishopric what are you a first counselor that first counselor in the bishopric <laughs> who what if he didn't hear it properly sure what if in his mind he's saying the words in his mind and that makes him think that it was said the right way and he doesn't say, whoa, whoa, full stop. You got to rebaptize. You said the word we instead of I. 
is that child still baptized? Because no one noticed it. That's right. And, and, and again, just to restate, we're not saying that it doesn't matter. Well, you want to do it correctly. We're right? not. We're not advocating that people go and write their own baptismal vows. Yeah, yeah. Well, you like to say. Well, actually, actually, Bishop, we wrote our own vows. We wrote our own vows. Uh, but so, so in this particular instance, where a father baptizes uh, ten people in, or you know, a man baptizes ten people in their life. Um, okay, well, so that's pretty infrequent. Maybe they're more likely to make mistakes or have issues or problems. Now, take uh, in contrast to that the temple where there is a tremendous amount of training that is done in the You temple. don't just become a temple worker just like, you don't just walk in and say, yeah, I guess I'm going to be a temple worker today. There's No, I mean, there's there's a tremendous amount. I mean, obviously, the, the worthiness piece matters, and, and but then you go in and you receive a tremendous amount of training. I had an opportunity to serve as a... Uh, uh, as a as a temple worker for a couple of years and really really enjoyed that, and so you you go through quite a bit of training, and then even after you go through that training, then they have you um, do some more basic things as you're kind of checking things off. And each temple does things different, and each temple, do, um, in terms of the way that they they do things, but there there's pretty standard training that you take initially. And they, and now there's there's supervisors all the way up of of people to make sure that things are done properly, to make sure that things are done in order, and to make sure that things uh, are done right. Now that said, one of there, there's a couple of trainings. Or one of the trainings in the temple specifically is that if you go and you make a mistake, that that doesn't invalidate the. Um, the work that is being done, the ordinance that is being done. Right. So if if you're trained to say it a specific way and, right. and, you, and you practice it and you practice it and you practice it and you go and you do it and then as you're walking you know, to your car that night, the, the realization comes to you, oh my goodness. You said we instead of I. I didn't say of. Right. I didn't say of. I, I, I know I didn't. That doesn't invalidate it. The, I mean, I don't want to get too specific in, in what those things are or not, but the, the training that we receive is, hey, we're going we're gonna to do our best. We need to do it right. We want to make sure we do it correct. We want to make sure we say it exact. But if you don't, that person on the other side is not now losing out on the opportunity of their salvation for your mistake. And And that's... And that's somebody that has received a lot of training that spends, you know, six to eight hours per week doing this versus kind of just the infrequency of doing baptisms. And even in that particular setting, it's, um, hey, we believe that in a loving and merciful father in heaven and we're doing our best and. And away we go. Yeah, and I think that Latter-day Saints, because, you know, look, we have a very organized church. We have a, a liturgy that's organized, that's spelled out. This is how things should be done. That, you know, we sometimes think, we confuse the way God has outlined things should be done with God not having the ability to do whatever God wants to do. <laughs> right. And they're not the same thing, they're right? Not. I mean, so so um, I wanted to to share, though, another example of baptism being another early controversial question. Again, uh, why does this matter? Why are there so many questions about baptism? Because you went from being a Protestant, believing that baptism was an outward symbol to being, you know, a Mormonite, as you might've been called at the time, a member of the church of Christ is what it was called, where baptism is essential. 
Well, suddenly if baptism is essential, then how I do it matters. And who has authority to do it matters. And who can be baptized, it matters far more because I am now... um, uh, I'm now elevating the status of a baptism. And so one last aspect of changes to the Doctrine and Covenants that I wanted to demonstrate related to this is actually from Doctrine and Covenants section 74 in the 2013 edition of the Scriptures. Because this also relates to baptism. But this is actually one of the most changed section headings in our Scriptures. Here's the reason why there was a problem. Well, Doctrine and Covenants section 74 was not dated in its earliest publication. When it's included in the in the Book of Commandments and the Doctrine and Covenants, it doesn't have a date. So the fact it doesn't have a date makes it pretty hard to, to place, you know, when was this? So when it was when it was reorganized into uh, the chronological sections, and the, the section heading that was created for it placed it alongside um, uh, the New Testament translation. The reason why is Doctrine and Covenants section 73 is, is entirely about that. What, what is Doctrine and Covenants section 73? Well, if you, you read it from, uh, uh, you know, either version, this is from the 2013 edition, the section heading revelation given to Joseph Smith, the prophet and Sidney Rigdon at Hiram, Ohio, January 10th, 1832. Since the early part of the preceding December, the prophet and Sidney had been engaged in preaching, and by this means, much was accomplished in diminishing unfavorable feelings that had arisen uh, uh, against the church. So it, you, you then have this uh, revelation telling them to do certain things. Well, what are Joseph and Sidney doing? They're engaged in the uh, translation of, of the New Testament. So when the history of the church is written, with this revelation that doesn't really have a date on it, what is written into the history of the church is, so right after Doctrine and Covenants section 73, what's written in is, upon the reception of the foregoing word of the Lord, I recommenced the translation of the scriptures and labored diligently until just before the conference, which was to convene on the 25th of January. During this period, I also received the following as an explanation of 1 Corinthians 7.14. So now you should understand, we should probably do an entire thing on the history of the church. That The way the history of the church was written was they took all these existing revelations, documents, and letters, and which was very common for the time because they were writing the history of Joseph Smith. They took things from a third person, you know, Joseph writing, you know, uh, you know someone, uh, Joseph writing, you know, he, he said that he would do this, you know, someone writing that to putting it in first person as if Joseph's writing his own history, even though there's scribes writing it for him. So it's not Joseph literally writing on the page, I also received the following revelation. It's a scribe who's writing the history, placing Joseph Smith's documents in the order that he thinks they're in. Now Joseph's going to review it, of course, but um, it makes perfect sense. What is uh, section 74 all about? It's all about 1 Corinthians 7.14. It even, it even quotes 1 Corinthians 7.14. Well, Joseph is translating the New Testament in December and January, in January of 1832. So it makes perfect sense that we receive this revelation as, an, uh, as we were questioning things about, you know, we got to 1 Corinthians and wait a minute, what about that? And then God gave, that's exactly how Doctrine and Covenants section 76 came, right? 
76 came uh, because they are thinking about things like John 5 talking about how there are different mansions, that there's there's a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. Well, how is that going to work? The, 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 the kingdoms come in the vision. So, so they place this revelation in that context in the history of the church. And thereafter, every edition of the Doctrine and Covenants and every uh, section heading uh, of it and every doctor, uh, Doctrine and Covenants commentary that was written all said this revelation came because of Joseph Smith translating the New Testament because that's what the history of the church said. The problem was that's not why this revelation was actually received. And how do we know that? Well, we know it because if you go to the actual section, uh, if you go to the, you know, we know it now because we have access to the earliest uh, uh, manuscript version of this. You go to the earliest manuscript version, and this is what it's titled. Um, if you go to it, I'll pull it up here. It, it is called An Explanation of Scripture. Okay, well, that's, uh, that is that uh, is different than many other revelations, the way it starts. But An Explanation of the Epistle to the 1 Corinthians 7th chapter, 14th verse, given to Joseph the Seer at Wayne County, New York, 1830. Now you can see the problem. In the previous edition of the editions of the Doctrine and Covenants and the history of the church, it is saying that it was received in January of 1832 and in Hiram, Ohio, while Joseph is then engaged in the translation of the New Testament. But our earliest manuscript copy of this shows that it wasn't received in Ohio. It wasn't received when Joseph Smith was doing the New Testament translation because he hadn't started doing it yet in 1830. And it uh, wasn't uh, wasn't related. Uh, well, so, and it, it was received in 1830 instead of 1832. So there's years difference there. What does that, what does that mean? Well, we don't know the exact date that this was received, but Wayne County is where, uh, uh, um, Palmyra is right. So the, the Wayne Sentinel, that's the, that's the Grandin's print, uh, newspaper that he prints on his print shop is the Wayne Sentinel, Wayne County. So this is a revelation that's received probably we're guessing in Palmyra or thereabouts. And in 1830, not, not years later, it actually changes the entire context of the revelation somewhere early in the church. My guess is actually pretty shortly after Doctrine and Covenants section 22 is received, the next question is given. You might wonder, well, why do you, why do you think this has anything to do with DNC 22? And I don't, I don't understand. Why would this have anything to do with, with baptism? Well, because 1 Corinthians 7, 14 was then and continues to be the primary argument that is made for why infant baptism should happen. Um, uh, it, we, we should, we should go to, uh, we'll go to, we'll go to first Corinthians real quick and read it. Here it is. We'll start maybe a, a couple verses before. So Paul writing the letter to the Corinthians, um, there starts to be questions in the early Christian church about, okay, so what happens if, uh, a man joins the church and is a believer and his wife refuses to become a Christian? Does that mean he should 
leave his wife? Or what if it's the other way around? What, what do you do? Um, and the woman, this is verse 13, and the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. So, so there's, Paul is saying, look, marriage itself is more important than not being married to someone who's not a believer. Okay, so if you, if, if you have that. And then he goes on in verse 14, and that's the one that becomes a big deal. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. This was taken as evidence for especially Protestants, but then also it's used in Catholicism as well, to justify infant baptism in the sense of saying, because you are a believer, your children are made holy because you're a believer. Now, they're not saved because you're holy, but that's the reason why. And then, of course, uh, multiple references in the New Testament to entire households being saved. You know, you know, and all of the household was baptized. And so that's led to, well, come on, there can't be, there's got to be some child in that household, right? It doesn't expressly say in the New Testament, but th- those were the justifications made for infant baptism. And really most of the Protestant denominations, the major ones in the United States at the time of Joseph Smith, most of them did practice infant baptism. But it was a really strong source of contention. I mean, you've got Baptists essentially saying, you guys are you guys are Catholic if you're doing infant baptism. You're the whole point of baptism is that it's a sign and a symbol of your conversion to Jesus, but you're giving it to a baby. Baptism should be by adults. Adults should make that. So it's it's a real source of contention. And so you can tell that what likely sparked this is someone saying, hey, should we be baptizing our baby? So, so the first question is, do we have to be baptized if we've already been baptized? And the Lord says, the Lord says, no, you, you, I mean, yeah, well, sorry. <laughs> the Lord says, yes, you have to be baptized even if you've already been baptized because you have to be baptized by proper authority. And then immediately on the heels of that, the next most logical question is asked. Well, do I have to be baptized? I mean, well, then if baptism is so essential, do children have to be baptized? In fact, they might have even, for all I know, DNC 74 might have been asked even before DNC 22 was asked. Someone might have said, they might have, maybe it wasn't Baptist. That's just a later source that says it's Baptist. Maybe it was someone saying, you don't understand. I was baptized as a Presbyterian when I was a baby. I shouldn't have to get baptized again. That infant baptism is being justified by that verse there uh, in in and has been for years. Like I said, it still is today. If you go read um, uh, theological discussions uh, justifying infant baptism today, it will be uh, along the lines of of First Corinthians seven fourteen will factor prominently. How does the Lord respond? Now I'm going to be reading from the manuscript here rather than from the verse, so if it doesn't sound exactly the same. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are they holy. Now in the days of the apostles. The law of circumcision was had among them. All the Jews which believed not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it came to pass that there arose a great contention among the people concerning the law of circumcision. For the unbelieving husband was desirous that his children should be circumcised and become subject to the law of Moses. 
which law was fulfilled. And it came to pass that the children being brought up in subjection to the law of Moses gave heed to the traditions of their fathers and believed not the gospel of Christ, wherein they became holy. Wherefore, for this cause, the apostle wrote unto the church, giving them a commandment, not of the Lord, but of himself, that a believer should not be united to an unbeliever, except the law of Moses should be done away among them, that their children might remain without circumcision, and that the tradition might be done away, which saith that little children are, are unholy, for it was had among the Jews, but little children are holy being sanctified through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And this is what these scriptures mean. So that's, I mean, frankly, as opposite as it could possibly be. Now, of course, the Book of Mormon speaks pretty clearly on uh, infant baptism. It's, uh, it, it is uh, not uh, a, a nuanced view that is being taken on infant baptism in the Book of Mormon. In fact, saying that people who believe that children have to be baptized, they're they're under condemnation, right? So this is not a surprising uh, response to the revelation, but what's interesting is that here, the Lord is giving a revelation to Joseph Smith that directly refutes the Christian interpretation of that verse and, and provides a completely different understanding of it. That this is not uh, a reference to... to, to baptizing your children so that they can be holy. It's, it's actually a reference to the fact that the dead work of circumcision is not what makes them holy. They're, they're holy already. And of course, um, Doctrine and Covenants section 20, the, the Articles and Covenants of the Church already throw out the idea of, of original sin. The idea, you know, that, that sin is... Uh, Something that is born into people that know that this idea instead is that everyone has the ability to be saved. And of course, the Articles of Faith are later going to go on. Many other things as well, but the Articles of Faith are going to go on and say that we believe that that men will be judged for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. And so early on, this discussion of what happens to children is a question that's being asked as the restored gospel of Jesus Christ reinstitutes this understanding that baptism is essential. Well, if baptism is essential, what happens to children? And what what they are told both in the Book of Mormon and also uh, through uh, multiple uh, teachings is that they're saved. That we are not wondering our catechism does not say we sure hope that there's some kind of an allowance made for children that aren't baptized. We actually know the allowance that's made and that through the atonement of Jesus Christ, little children who die are saved and we don't even do their temple work. We seal them to their parents, but we don't perform baptisms for the dead for babies that died. We we say that they are celestial glory bound. Um, we don't live with the ambiguity of wondering what happens if a child dies before a child reaches the age of accountability. God has declared it in his scriptures, through his prophets, that child is saved. 
saved in the celestial kingdom, not just saved from hellfire, they're saved to the point where while we will do temple work for every person on this earth eventually, we won't be doing any baptisms for the dead for for children that die. And uh, that speaks to how central to Latter-day Saint theology, the idea that there is no original sin. It's, it's interesting. You would actually think it would be the other way around that if Joseph was going to concoct a religion in which baptism suddenly became essential, even though for Protestants for 300 years it hadn't been, that you would think he would more heavily lean on the fact that there's original sin. Oh, you better, you got to get baptized. You better get baptized in my church tomorrow. Because if you're not baptized by authority, you are going to hell. Instead, throughout Joseph Smith's ministry, what you see is a lessening of the exclusion of baptism, right? Not only, yeah, baptism is essential, but not for children. Baptism is essential, but if you don't get it in this life, people can do your work for you. Baptism is essential, but if people would have accepted the gospel anyway, they're still going to be saved in the celestial kingdom. It's a... it's an interesting dichotomy, honestly, to say that works are essential, except when they're not, which is apparently most of the time. And and for the, the millions of children who have died and will die before they reach the age of eight, there literally isn't any ordinance that's essential for them. So it, it, it's one of the beautiful aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, there's all kinds of things that we don't have answers to. But there are a lot of really awesome things that we have answers to. And so my hope is if you're listening and you're really struggling with some aspects of church doctrine or history that you don't understand, first of all, you aren't alone. I don't understand everything. And it's my, it's worse for me because it's my job to understand, right? For you, you can just say, well, you know, I don't know. I'm literally studying it all the time. And I'm like, I've got nothing. I don't know. I don't have any idea. It's like an accountant. I I don't know anything about numbers. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and so my hope is that when you're struggling because of these questions, you can't answer, you won't forget the fact that God actually has provided some answers to questions that the rest of the Christian world is still wrestling with. I mean, it, it's a beautiful thing that the Catholic catechism portrays that hope that those children who die with an improper baptism or who don't have baptism, that they will still be saved. But it is just a hope. Joseph Smith declares in the voice of the Lord, it's not a hope. Those children who die, not only are they saved, those parents who lost those children will have the opportunity to raise them in the millennium. It is a beautiful doctrine, one that I'm not willing to give up and one that I hope you're not willing to give up. Maybe you won't have an answer to everything, but there are answers to some things that many other Christians don't have answers for. And hopefully those beautiful answers can help us get past the rough patches where we don't have them. 
Hopefully you enjoyed this looking uh, back at this. I'm, I'm sure that this was probably just as entertaining as townships. Um, but um, there really are important reasons to study the original uh, revelations in their earliest form because otherwise we wouldn't know the context of this revelation. Now we know in the early church, people were asking questions about baptism and infant baptism because we have that new dating. Thank you so much for joining us and we Look forward to seeing you again virtually next week. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.